Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. Today we're going to go ahead and teach out of Colossians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, this will be a one-off sermon, meaning it's not part of a series. This will be for this weekend. And I didn't want to start a series this week because next week my bride is teaching on Mother's Day. No pressure. Actually, the pressure's on me, just so y'all know. How many of you guys have heard my wife teach before? All right, so you know where I'm coming from. The pressure's on me. She's going to teach, and then I'm going to come up the week after that, and the pressure's on me because she's a better teacher than me. Um, and she loves the Lord, and for whatever reason, she thinks I'm cool. So, But anyway, that's why we're doing a one-off today. I need to focus. we got a lot of stuff to talk about. We're in Colossians chapter 3. I want to talk to you today about perfecting unity. Perfecting unity from Colossians 3, 12 through 17. This is a subject I've talked about many times, and I'm going to continue talking about it because it's important. Because the church is fractured. Not just this church, but the big C church. There are fractions within this church. As much as we love each other, as much as we're called to love, serve, and speak kindly to one another within the philosophies of our ministry, and we do that very well, there are still relationships that are broken inside of this congregation. There are still issues that need to be dealt with that are disturbing unity amongst us. Amen? And so we, want, we need to address this from time to time just to make sure that even if we are doing it right, that we continue to get it right. My grandpa used to repeat to me over and over and over the same stuff. And it's because he needed me to know that stuff. And repetition is one of the better teachers. And so, unity. It's essential to the Christian life. We are called to be unified. Unity is a lot like sanctification. And let me break this word down for you so that it doesn't confuse anyone because I know not everybody was brought up with a church background. I wasn't. Somebody had to explain these words to me. Unity is like sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we are set aside. And that's why it's like, and that's why unity is like it. It's a process in which we are perfected. There's a moment in our life when we confess Jesus Christ is Lord that we are positionally sanctified. We're saved. God has set us apart. We belong to him. Amen? Now, there is also a progressional sanctification, which is the process of perfecting that which God has placed in us. Amen? Or perfecting ourselves because of what God placed in us. Unity is the same way. When we came to salvation, we became part of the family of God. We were made one with one another. We have this in common, Christ Jesus. Amen? And according to the word, which I'm going to explain to you in a little while, we have been adopted as sons, literally been made family because of that moment, because of that moment of sanctification. But like our positional sanctification, we have to grow 
in unity. We have to purify our unity. We have to perfect our unity because we still lack. Is anybody in here still lack and being unified with the brethren in all times and all situations and all circumstances? I am. Sometimes I want to look at people and slap them upside their head, even if they belong to Jesus. And I'm sure there's moments when y'all want to do that to me. And that's okay. You know what? As long as we can work through it, work past it, move beyond it, we're all right. The idea is to perfect that which God wants perfected in us. And God wants to perfect unity in us. But how do we do that? We do that by realizing first who we are. We are a new creature when we have that moment of sanctification, when we have that moment when we're set aside and made holy. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it plainly. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Everybody say new creature. That means brand new. The old things have passed away. All that stuff you used to be should be leaving. Behold, new things have come. You are something new entirely. Why are you something new entirely? I'm just trying to knock down some dominoes to set the stage for what we're talking about today. You're a new creature, but why are you a new creature? Because everything about you is new. God has placed a new heart in you and a new spirit in you. And because you have a new heart and a new spirit, according to Ezekiel, you are a new creature. Let me prove that to you in Scripture, because I don't want you to just say, well, Pastor Jim said, in verse 25, it talks about how God cleansed us, and because he cleansed us, we are clean. But it's 36.26 in Ezekiel that I want you to pay attention to. Moreover, I will give them a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. So we have had a spiritual heart transplant. We had a heart of stone. Now this is, this is church platitude, right? This is just stuff we say. You hear this all the time. Oh, I've got a, he took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. What does that mean? What is a heart of stone? A heart of stone is cold. It is calloused. It doesn't care. It's not tender. We have been given something else. We've been given a new heart that shouldn't be callous, that shouldn't be unsensitive, that shouldn't be unfeeling. We should be tender, compassionate. We should love one another and be unified together because our heart is no longer a heart of stone. God took that heart out of us and gave us a new one. And so we're a new creature because we have a new heart. And in our new heart, we've been given a new spirit. This is the expectation of salvation, that all things are made new, which means that you have a responsibility, and that's to take off the old self while putting on the new self. Who you used to be doesn't exist anymore, according to what I just read you out of Corinthians, and so you should be who God created you to be and be consistently more who God created you to be, the longer you're in the Christian life. Which means, according to this text, I'm going to go backwards from where I told you I'm teaching because I, I haven't started my teaching yet. It means that we have to set aside immorality, because that's old people's stuff, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. If you'll skip down to verse 8, we have to set aside anger, wrath, 
malice, slander, abusive speech. We're not to lie to one another. We're supposed to put all this stuff aside. To take on the old self, we have to be putting off all of this stuff. Put on, taking off. Put on, taking off. What's the difference in the two? To put on is to put on Christ. That happens immediately. To take, to be taking off is something that gradually happens. It's a process. There's a process by which we become holy in our walk. Are you guys completely holy? Then you can have still have some work to do. Amen? I still have some work to do. I love that this church allows me to be transparent. I can't imagine pastoring a church where y'all expect me to be high and lifted up because that's never going to happen for me. The brass and glass church that puts their pastor on a pedestal puts their pastor in a place to fall and be injured and injure themselves. I will tell you that I struggle with the same stuff you struggle with. I'm still having to put on the new flesh. And I expect to have to do that until the time that I die. And God, in the presence of God, who is perfect, be made perfect. So know that we are expected to put on the new self, take off the old self, because we belong to a new family. Ephesians 4, or correction, 1, 4 through 6 says this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Did you catch that? He adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? Because he loves us. Why else? because it's his, the good intention of his will, because he just determined that that's what he wanted, to the praise of his glory and grace. And ultimately, the reason was because, for the same reason that he does everything that he does, which is so that he might be glorified in the process. So here we are. We're a new creature. We've been given a new heart. We've been given a new spirit. We belong now to the family of God. It's time that we take off who we were and put on who we are. Amen? Let's perfect unity. One of those things is unity. And so reads the text. Chapter 3, starting in verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. 
I got three points I want to make about perfecting unity, both how we achieve it and what it should cause in us. And the first one is this. Perfecting unity is possible only as we are unified in Christ. Unity is impossible without Jesus. 12a reads like this. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, can I tell you, you've been chosen of God. You. And you. Back there. I took my glasses off. Can't really make out faces. I shouldn't have. Dart. God chose you. Josh. God chose you. God chose God chose you. He saw that there was something redeemable in you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. Everything that we have starts and finishes with one thing, Christ and him crucified. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. There's nothing we can do to earn it. But we must reflect the heart of God because we belong to God. Because the spirit that he put in us, this hardened spirit that he put in us, is the hardened spirit of God. Amen? And so we should reflect who we belong to. <clears throat> now, a lot of people will tell you that this, you have been chosen by God. This is evidence that we've been predestined. That God's going to save some and God's going to destroy some. Can I tell you, that's not this text. That's not what this text means. The Colossian church had bought into a heresy. Philosophical ideologies that had caused them to question who they were. And whether in fact they had ever been saved at all. And Paul's saying, listen, Colossians. And I'm saying, listen, Launch Point Church. I don't care what vain philosophies you've heard. I don't care what kind of disturbing teachings you've heard. I don't care what kind of lies you've been told. I don't care what people have said about you. You have been chosen by God. God chose you. The addict, God chose you. The drunkard, God chose you. The black guy, God chose you. The white guy, God chose you. It doesn't matter. God chooses everyone. There's a general calling on everyone to be saved. This is the truth of the word of God. For whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That doesn't say whosoever will according to my predetermined plan or if I like you or if you're worthy. The fact of the matter is none of us are worthy. But God chose us. Man, we should be super excited about that because I am unworthy except that God determined us to focus his love on me. I am deserving of an eternity in hell except that God chose me to be holy and blameless, to be set aside, to be perfect, to be without anything standing between he and I. We started our conversation before worship about this. We should know, I want you to know that God chose you through Christ Jesus to be holy and blameless. Man, that's good. He's not set you aside. There's not a single person in this room that he set aside and says, I want to know everybody except for you. This is the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, 
who, he's talking about God, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's two beautiful truths in this. Two beautiful promises in this. Here it is. The first one, he desires all men to be saved. And that's non-gender specific. He desires all human beings to be saved. Amen? He wants to be in relationship with you. But did you know he could save you and still not have anything to do with you? He could. There's people, I'm going to talk about forgiveness in a few minutes, really step on your toes. But there's people I forgive I don't talk to. Because I forgive them doesn't mean I trust them. But we serve a God that not only desires that all men should be saved, but that also all men come to a knowledge of the truth, which means a knowledge of him because he is truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. So God not only saved us, he wants us to know him. He wants to be known by us. He wants us to worship him and love him and serve him while he holds us in his righteous right hand as I prayed moments ago. This is the truth of the fact that he called us. And I know I'm spending a lot of time, when I told you I was going to talk between verses 12 through 17 in the first half of the first verse, but if you don't get anything else out of this, I want you to understand God chose you. He saw value in you. He sees value in you. He acknowledges and understands that you, because he loves you, has worth. Man, praise the Lord. And he has grafted us in to the promise of Abraham because he loves us. He sacrificed and acknowledged it. His sacrifice and acknowledgement of us saves us. And it unites us. It unifies us. I'm going to prove this to you in Ephesians chapter 2. It says this. Verses 11 through 14. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, that's the Jews, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were all that, that you were at that time separated from Christ. He's telling them, say, remember, Gentile, that's us, unless any of you are Jewish. He said, this was your condition separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, which means you didn't hold the hope. You didn't have any hope that, the, that you would be held under the covenant of Abraham, that you, would, that you would benefit by being brought forward of his seed. You were having no hope and without God in this world. You were doomed to destruction, which ought to make us really sad, except... But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near, that is, to the commonwealth of Israel and to the covenant, having hope, and with God, you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. This is the verse I want you to hear. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He's saying, listen, Jesus unified you. 
You can't perfect unity if you don't know where unity started. It started in Jesus. The fact that he took two groups of people, the Gentile and the Jews, which is the only two kind of people on earth, just so you know, people of the world and people in the Jewish folks. He took everyone, made them one, unifying them. You can't perfect unity if you don't know where unity started. And it started because God chose you to be holy and blameless. Amen? The second thing I would want you to know is that perfecting unity requires we actually act like Jesus towards other people. <laughs> what? You know, the Bible says if you're going to call yourself a Christian, you ought to walk as Christ walked. Oh, man, I don't got time for that. Well, it's part of the promised covenant that you made. Call Jesus Christ Lord, you do what the Lord says. To do what the Lord does is to do what the Lord says. Paul, I love the way Paul writes. Paul never tells us the truth of grace without giving us a what he expects of us because of the grace. Because of the grace of God, we were chosen to be holy and blameless. Now, what are we supposed to do about that? He says this, again, starting in verse 12, but this time in the second half. <laughs> Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. He says, if you're going to belong to me, if I've taken the time, if I've suffered so that you guys can be unified together, first with me and then with one another, then at least you could do is act like I act towards one another as I do towards you. You should be compassionate because Christ is compassionate. You know what compassionate at its heart means? Compassionate means mercy in action. It says, I see your struggle, I see your pain, I see your hurt, and I'm so provoked by it that it forces me to do something about it. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, looking down from heaven, looked at us and said, you're in a condition you can't do anything about. And the only thing that will make that better is if I take action. If I come down from heaven and if, I've, if I allow myself in humility, which is also listed there, to be born as a sacrifice for you upon the cross. We have to walk as Jesus walked. We have to be compassionate. But we also have to be, according to this text, kind you know, Jesus was never unkind. People are all, oh, the rebel Jesus flipping over tables. That wasn't him being unkind. That was an exhibition of his kindness. You know why? Because the Pharisees and the people had been harming God's people. They were taking advantage of God's people. And because they weren't being kind, he got righteously indignant. It was an exhibition of his kindness and how we should treat one another. We should treat each other better than that. Everything he did from healing to coming here was an act of kindness. We should walk in humility, meaning that we ain't that big a deal. 
Did you hear me say that? Did I say that out loud? Because that hurt my feelings. I feel like I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, we're not that big a deal. I like to think I'm a big deal sometimes. But I'm not as big a deal as Jesus. And Jesus, like I said, came down out of heaven and allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. That's the example of humility that we have. He came down so that we may be lifted up. You want to test your humility? Ask yourself, who am I willing to get lower than so that I can lift them up? If you're willing to do that for other people without expecting anything in return, you're a humble person. If you can do it sometimes, but not all the time, you still have work to do. But we all still have work to do. But that's the mark. Amen? To become less so that the people around us can become more. Not only humility, though, gentleness. He was always gentle. He was always patient. He was always bearing with folks. He was long-suffering is what I'm saying. How awesome would this church be if we were humble, compassionate, long-suffering, gentle, kind, we didn't take offense. It's a, it's, I'm serious. The Christian should be the hardest person on earth to offend. But people say, Pastor Jim, you don't, you don't know my life. You don't know what I'm going through. I don't. I don't. You're right, I don't. But you know what? You should still be unoffendable. I can't tell you how many people will tell me, I'm not going to church because so-and-so offended me. More often than not, that so-and-so was me. I'm going to tell you a secret. You ready for this? It's going to make you feel foolish if you're holding an offense. Most of the people that offend you have no idea they've offended you. And so you're walking around mad about something that nobody else is even thinking about. How about instead of being offended, you walk in humility, you walk in gentleness, you walk in kindness, you walk in compassion, and you go up to them and have a conversation and say, hey, that hurt my feelings. And have a true conversation with them. That's what family does. If you won't do it at home with your real family, why are you willing to do it here with, with your real family? Because this is your real family. Amen? And then he doesn't just stop there. He says this, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. How big a deal is forgiveness? forgiveness unforgiveness will keep you out of heaven you know that? If you're not willing to forgive, I'm not willing to forgive you. That's what the Bible says. You're all, man, I thought the only thing required for salvation was that I declare Jesus Christ as Lord, believe my heart to God, raise him from the dead. That is the only thing required of salvation. So how can unforgiveness keep you out of prison? This is how. Because unforgiveness proves that you aren't willing to extend grace. And if you aren't willing to extend grace, that proves that you never really received grace in the first place. And we got to be willing to 
extend grace. Because we've been forgiven much, we should forgive much. To what standard? The Bible says to forgive one another. To forgive one another because you love them. And that's what he continues. He says, and perfect this in love. In verse 14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. You see this progression? But beyond all this, put on love. Why? Because love, all the correction, all these other things are a byproduct of love. I'm gentle, I'm humble, I'm kind. I'm all of these things because my love's right. How am I supposed to love my neighbor? Anybody? As yourself, right? The Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself. Second greatest commandment. But then Jesus says, he ups the ante a little bit, and he says, love them as I have loved you. What? How does God love you? I had to wrap it up in one word, it would be sacrificially, giving completely of himself, which means we should be able to do the same or willing to do the same for other people. You're all, Pastor Jim, that's great, man, but I can't, I can't meet the needs of everyone. You can't, and I'm not asking you to. I'm asking you to be part of a family, unified with that family, so maybe three of us can meet the need of someone. Or 10 of us can meet the need of someone. Or 200 of us cumulatively can meet the need of someone so that we can encourage one another, so that we can love one another, so that we can walk in humility, so that we can bear with one another, be long-suffering together. This is what family does. This is how we perfect unity, by getting our love right. It's time the church got its love right and understands that it ain't about you. It's about the person sitting next to you. Forgive them and love them, even if they've hurt you. One of the greatest relationships I have in my, in my life is my brother. My brother's three years older than I am. He shot me one time in the face with a BB gun. In the face, from like this far away, right on the point of my chin. And he pumped up the little pistol so much, had so much air pressure that it went in the skin hit the bone, traveled up the jawline, and stopped about right here. And I had to push that little BB out of that hole, screaming the whole time, while listening to his screaming the whole time, please don't tell mama, please don't tell mama, please don't tell mama. He didn't ask me for forgiveness. He didn't even want to get in trouble. But you know what we did? I got that BB out. We fought it out, and then we were okay. You know why? Because we love each other. Sometimes I feel like the church, I just want to have a, a day where there's a, there's a thing we had in the military is called take it to the tree line. If you, wanted, if you had a problem with somebody that was a different rank than you, but you still wanted to deal with it, you'd, you'd invite them to the tree line. Well, we can take this to the tree line. That means rank didn't matter. I mean, it did, nothing mattered. You just go out there, you handle your business, you, you get all that aggression out, you come back, and then rank starts mattering again. I feel like the church should just have a let's get, get out the tree line moment, work through it, whatever it takes, love one another, forgive one another through it, and then come back together. 
because this is family. Every time we fought, if we separated, we wouldn't be together very long. Amen? Not, not that we've ever fought. <laughs> not that we've ever fought that it wasn't my fault. How about that? She's not going to agree to that either. So I'm just saying, to perfect unity, act like Jesus. And then finally, my last point. Perfecting unity overflows into a life of worship. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. To which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. I'm about to sneeze. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's work through this. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Do you know when you act like Jesus, you're going to start having the peace of Jesus? How can I have peace? How can I have peace? The world's upside down. Would anybody disagree that the world's upside down? Things are crazy right now. How can I have peace? By living a life of worship. A life of worship starts with a life in the Word. It says here, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. The more I read this Bible, and it's the reason why I push it on you all, all the time, is because my peace is found here. I know who I am because the Bible tells me who I am. I know that I know that I can't be removed from God because the word of God tells me so. I know that when I'm struggling and suffering and being persecuted, God will protect me because the word of God tells me so. I know when I'm in need, God will provide for me because the Bible tells me so. I know that I'm saved because the Word of God tells me so. I could go on and on and on, but I think you get the point. If I know that I know that those things are true, what do I have to walk in anything but peace about? We should be people of peace because we're people of the Word. And that peace, that understanding of the Word, should bring praise to our lips. It says with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Y'all ever just get so excited about something God's doing, you just start praising God. You just start worshiping. You just start praying out loud. Maybe in the shower, do a little dance or something. I do. I sing in the shower, just so y'all know. It's the only time I, no, it's not the only, it's the only time I should sing. Probably shouldn't sing then. But I sing. Because my God is good. Because he chose me to be holy and blameless. Amen? So what have we learned? We've learned that perfecting holiness recognizes where 
or perfecting unity, recognize where unity comes from, how unity is perfected, and what perfect unity should result in. And that is a heart of thanksgiving. The last verse says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I'm thankful to God that he chose me. I'm thankful to God that he's bestowed me with his spirit. But I'm also thankful to God for the family he's placed around me. And that's y'all. I'm going to tell you something blow your mind, but it's true. You can ask Angela, you can ask anybody that I know personally. I consider this family as much as family as my, my blood family. And in a lot of instances, greater than. Because God has given me relationships in the church I'd never had. I didn't have a relationship with my dad. The church gave me hundreds of dads. I didn't have a great relationship with my mother. The church gave me a hundred mothers. Y'all are my family, and I'm thankful to God for it. Let us be unified like family. Amen? Let's pray.